Chapter 10, Self-Care Self-care is never a selfish act, it is simply good stewardship of the only gift I have, the gift I was put on earth to offer others. Parker J. Palmer I decided to include self-care as the last of the five core practices for cultivating your happier skills because it encompasses the first four practices within it. Self-care means that you approach yourself with acceptance rather than condemnation or harsh judgment, particularly when you make a mistake or fail at something. It asks that you express gratitude to yourself for your strengths, your quirks, and your being. Self-care means extending the same kindness and compassion toward yourself as you would toward someone you care about, and remembering that you have a purpose to serve and that you can do it best when you nourish yourself and fuel your mind, body, and soul. It isn't an extra or some bonus that you earn after you work hard enough or achieve certain milestones. It's an integral, necessary practice that helps you cultivate your happier skills. We can't feel good if we're physically and emotionally drained. We can't get through the many times life throws us curveballs if we're not taking care of ourselves. This seems like an obvious idea and yet many of us put taking care of ourselves toward the very bottom of our list of priorities. So, pause for a minute and think about the kind of relationship you have with yourself. I don't recall a single time when I did this for most of my life. You want me to think about how I treat myself? What a ridiculous idea. That is what I used to think, selfish. At the rare times when I circled the topic, I just thought that I wasn't pushing myself hard enough, wasn't doing as much as I should, wasn't reaching as high or moving as fast to get there as I should have been. Exactly zero times did I think something crazy like you should take care of yourself better. You should be kinder to yourself. You're good enough as you are. It never crossed my mind to treat myself with the kindness and care I tried to extend to my family and friends. I would tell them to take breaks, and I'd often try to steal them away for lunch or a walk. But I wouldn't take breaks myself. I loved surprising my husband and daughter with a beautiful dinner on a weeknight or turning a regular morning into one that felt a little less routine with their favorite breakfast. In the process, I exhausted myself by trying to make these surprises as perfect as possible. By no means was I a selfless human being who only ever thought about other people. I spent plenty of time feeling sorry for how exhausted and drained I felt, while at the same time berating myself for not working hard enough. It took hitting rock bottom to give myself permission to spend time and energy to nurture myself. Why didn't I do it earlier? Because I didn't feel that I deserved it. The foundation of self-care is self-love, a belief that we're worth our own kindness and support. And I didn't love myself, I made that love conditional upon achieving enough, and I hadn't gotten to that enough yet. My experience is hardly unique. It's amazing how many smart, kind, loving, successful people feel they don't deserve the love and care they extend to others. When I hesitantly began to share my struggle to be self-compassionate, I was blown away by the number of times I heard this kind of confession, I don't feel that I deserve to take care of myself, to love myself, to be happy. From self-acceptance to self-love, where do our feelings of unworthiness come from? Why is it easier to be kind to a friend or more understanding with a family member than with ourselves? In part, we struggle with feeling worthy of our own love and care because our negativity bias is masterful at spotting negative traits in ourselves. Think about it. 
What do you say to yourself more often, I appreciate this aspect of myself or this behavior or this aspect of myself or my behavior should be different, I dislike it and I should have changed it already. I cringe thinking about the numbers of days I've started by looking in the bathroom mirror and immediately condemning some part of myself, I hate the fat on my stomach. I should have gotten more done yesterday, it feels wrong, strange, not humble, not real to express gratitude to ourselves for ourselves. We're more comfortable taking the good stuff for granted. But the stories we create are extremely powerful. If we always hear about what's wrong and rarely about what's good, and beautiful, strong, bold, compassionate, creative, then no wonder so many of us don't feel worthy of our own love. Of course, other people throughout our lives might contribute to our sense of unworthiness. But our own continual self-criticism drives these feelings deeper. We just don't have to approach ourselves this way. We have a choice. The way toward realizing that we're worthy of our own love begins by giving ourselves permission to recognize our many good qualities and to take care of ourselves with the same care and compassion we reserve for other people we love. At 35, my friend Nondani had a successful career and was the CEO of a financial literacy company she helped found in Boston. She had a great circle of friends, loving parents who lived a few hours away, a brother she was close to. Yet almost from the moment we met I could sense a struggle in her. It turned out that Nondini's marriage had ended and she was going through a painful divorce. Sometime after her divorce was finalized, Nondini began to date. At first, there was an urgency to it. She was hungry for a warm, loving relationship. But she also felt she should have one. Her younger brother was engaged to be married, and her parents, whom she loved very much, wanted her to be happily remarried. Nondani and her parents had always imagined that her life would be a certain way when she reached her mid-thirties, marriage, career, a house, maybe kids. Nondani met some nice men, but the dates didn't turn into meaningful relationships. She had a lot of doubt, about dating again, that someone else would love her, about her own ability to love herself. Sometimes this doubt would feel paralyzing to her, and I could so relate. The voice of doubt in her head echoed the vicious voice of doubt that dominated my thoughts for so many years. One night on our way to dinner, she told me that she'd decided to remove her online dating profile. I was surprised, but she said it with a confidence I hadn't heard from her in a long while. She wanted to be solo for a while, to take time and space to heal and love who she was, just as known Dini herself, without a perfect relationship. Then she read me a letter she wrote to herself. Tears welled up in my eyes as I listened, but I was also happy for her. She was generous enough to give me permission to share her letter with you. Dear Nondini, I love you. I love you more than anyone else could ever love you. I will not abandon you. I will not leave you. I will not betray you. You and I are building a relationship that cannot be severed. As a gift to you, which is the part of me that is wounded and mourning and scared. I offer you this, I release you from the expectations of your ego. You do not have to be perfect for me to love you. I see all of you, know all of you, and I have known and been there for your every single mess up and mistake. And I still love you and accept you as you are. I forgive you. I forgive you completely. I want to remove the pressure you put on yourself to look like everything is fine and that you have bounced back perfectly.
That is why I am going to take down your dating profiles and the only expectation that I have of you going forward is that you will discover, learn, and fall in love with yourself. I know that this is the only pathway and the only way to find true happiness and peace. It is a gift that only we can give each other. I also give you the gift of not repeating the same mistakes and the same behaviors over and over again. I will not let other people use you as a revolving door and I will not let you see yourself in that way. I will stop judging you. If you feel pain I will sit with you and let you feel that pain. If you feel sadness I will sit with you and let you feel that sadness. When you are joyful and when you laugh, I will be by your side. I am committed to you. When you are ready, that is when we will head out into the world. United, whole, self-aware, and self-accepting. That does not mean perfection. It simply means that you will know who you are and what you want. And what will truly make you happy. With love, Nondini. Nondini's letter was proof to herself that she deserved her own love. She didn't have to achieve it or make up for her past missteps or meet a new husband to be worthy of it. She was simply lovable as she was. Her letter was a reminder to the critical part of herself that she could ease up on her self-judgment, and that what she really craved and needed was already within reach, her self-acceptance. You deserve your own love too. Not because you're perfect or have achieved enough of the right things, but because you're you, with all the complex and beautiful parts of you. Self-love asks that first you practice acceptance and learn how to see yourself clearly, with the flaws and mistakes and the awesome parts. Then you cultivate your ability to love yourself, not despite your flaws but inclusive of them. You learn to love your true being. Becoming better friends with yourself. Think about people you love. Do they have flaws? The answer is probably yes. Have they ever made mistakes or done something that hurt you? Also, probably yes. Yet you still love them. You may get angry, upset, frustrated, sad, disappointed at them at times. But you don't withdraw your love. You're a being, not a doing, Janet said to me one day when I was struggling with her suggestion that I practice loving and accepting myself just as I am. But I'm not always kind or forgiving, I argued, and I've hurt people I love and I've not achieved enough and, those are things you might have done, she said calmly. And we all have ways we've screwed up and ways we can improve. I'm not asking you to love everything you do but to love who you are, your being. While I understood what Janet meant, I had trouble putting her words into practice. I couldn't separate my being from all the things I've done, including my many mistakes. But one day, shortly after my meeting with Janet, I had a flash of clarity. Mia and I were running outside to my car, which was parked in front of our house on a freezing Boston winter day. When I tried to open the door, I realized I'd forgotten my keys in the house. Under my breath. I mumbled angrily at myself, you're so stupid. How dumb is it to forget your keys when you know it's so cold? Mia was looking straight at me, and in that moment I had a realization that set me on a path to try to practice self-compassion. I recognized that I would never react that way to her if she had made a small mistake like this. I love her unconditionally and wouldn't treat her with that same knee-jerk harshness. I was also struck by the awareness that how I treat myself is setting up a model for how Mia might learn to treat herself as she grows up, and I would never want her to be this harsh. Simply put, self-compassion means that we treat ourselves as we would treat a good friend or someone we care about. 
If a friend makes a mistake or fails at something, do you berate them? Scream at them? Tell them they're an awful failure and will be forever? Of course not, you wouldn't want to make them feel worse. You probably comfort your friend, extend kindness, and remind them that this isn't the end of the world and they can get through it. Do you treat yourself this way? At the heart of self-compassion is the way we talk to ourselves. Remember the voice in your head from the chapter about acceptance? When we practice becoming aware of our thoughts, we often discover that the voice in our head can be incredibly harsh. It can be so cruel that it keeps us from experiencing the good in many of our daily moments. It's often total joy kill and incredibly deflating. Gretchen, whose stressful job involves managing multiple projects and teams, was taking my course on self-compassion when she emailed me this insight. When I run into an obstacle during work, I start to immediately beat myself up about it because I feel like I didn't get everything done as perfectly as I should have. Which then makes me feel like I'm not good enough and that just ruins my spirit. It's like this never-ending cycle. I can't even celebrate small victories because I keep thinking that I could have done something better. Gretchen also mentioned in our email exchange that while she tries to be encouraging and kind toward people she works with, even when they make mistakes, she feels that doing the same for herself is like letting herself off the hook. I can absolutely relate. One of the biggest issues I had with self-compassion was that it felt like the enemy of achievement on self-improvement. Personally, I preferred investing my energy in beating myself up rather than letting myself off lightly. This is the objection I hear from so many people, if I'm super nice and gentle with myself, then I'll never improve at anything. But self-compassion isn't about ignoring our mistakes or failures or trying to see them through fake rosy sunglasses. Self-compassion doesn't mean we give ourselves a pass and just don't care about what we do or how we might affect other people. Rather, it's rooted in the same place where our compassion and kindness toward others come from, a desire to reduce suffering and improve well-being. Mark Leary, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Duke University, offers a useful insight in his article about self-compassion for Ian magazine titled Don't Beat Yourself Up. Self-compassionate people want to reduce their current problems, he writes, but they also want to respond in ways that promote their well-being down the road, and being lazy and unmotivated is not likely to help. In fact, research shows that self-compassion increases motivation. In one study that Leary describes, researchers Juliana Brynas and Serena Chen, both from the University of California, Berkeley, gave participants who failed an initial test another chance to improve their scores. Those who thought about their initial failure in a self-compassionate way studied 25% longer and scored higher on the second test than participants who focused on increasing their self-esteem. Reacting to failure with self-compassion reduces our fear of failure because we don't beat ourselves up as harshly, so we're more willing to try again and to try even harder. Think for a minute about how you talk to yourself if you make a mistake or fail at achieving a goal. Do you berate yourself and beat yourself up? If you do, do you feel motivated or inspired to try a different approach or work harder? I think if we're honest with ourselves, most of us would say no. When we approach ourselves with compassion, on the other hand, we can see more clearly where we might have gone wrong, what we should do differently, and, perhaps most importantly, fuel ourselves with positive energy to try again.
making self-care routine, learning how to practice self-compassion, including talking to ourselves in a kinder way, is an integral part of self-care. But there are other elements. What helps you to feel nourished? Eating healthy, getting sleep, exercising, spending time outside, meditating, catching up with friends, sitting in a cafe for an hour and people watching, reading, journaling, or something else? Your self-care practice is a way to refuel so that you have the emotional and physical energy to thrive, including getting through times when life isn't going great. Self-care should be something you want to do rather than feel obligated to accomplish. It's your time to be a really good friend to yourself and take yourself on a tiny little vacation within the routine of your everyday responsibilities. To prevent your long list of to-dos from sabotaging your self-care, you have to treat it with some discipline. Because even if you overcome the guilt obstacle many of us run into, feeling as if you don't deserve to be nice to yourself or feeling guilty about taking time just for you, self-care can get lost behind all the other responsibilities you have on your plate. It's so easy to put ourselves last. My friend Sharon recently launched a new company while also working through some family priorities that needed her attention. She felt overwhelmed, and when I asked what she was doing just for herself, she admitted she struggled with that. I feel that taking care of me comes in place of taking care of others, she said. We can all relate, there are only so many hours in the day. But what I told her in response is the same thing I tell myself whenever I feel that there isn't time to take care of myself or the voice of guilt in my head gets too loud, you can't give what you don't have. We might think that we can run our wells of emotional and physical energy dry and still take care of people we care about, do great work, excel at our studies, or manage our priorities. But it's just not possible, not for longer than a short while. We have to take care of ourselves to be able to take the best care of the people and things that matter to us. One of the best ways to avoid making self-care last on our list is to make it a regular part of our routines, a steadfast component of our daily anchors. I asked Chaitan, my friend whose burnout I shared with you in part 1, to tell me how he finally made caring for himself a priority. His answer surprised me. Maybe because he's a natural entrepreneur, he chose to approach it just the way he approaches all his work. I think the biggest shift was treating self-care like a job, he said. That sounds a little drab, but it was absolutely critical for it to work for me. It feels strange to talk about taking care of ourselves as yet another task. But if you don't become disciplined about it, if you don't elevate it to the same level of importance as your work or taking care of other people, the voice in your head will find opportunities to sabotage even your best intentions. When I asked people who participated in my class on self-compassion why they weren't doing better at self-care, here is what I heard, I know yoga makes me feel really good and helps me to recharge, but I just get caught up in getting other stuff done and don't make it to class. I feel so much better when I get a run or a brisk walk in, but I end up catching up on work after the kids are in bed and don't get out often. I know how important it is to get good sleep and how much better I function when I do, but there's just so much to do, to write, to read, that I often get to bed too late. So, I think Chetan is onto something when he talks about treating self-care like a job, with the same degree of consistency, planning, and discipline. Here is how he approached getting better sleep, I never used to be very rigorous about my sleep. I kind of enjoyed the mental image of myself as a relaxed person, 
and I told myself I do my best work at night. But in fact, nighttime was the only time that I was carving out for uninterrupted work. When I set a target bedtime for myself of 11 p.m., and committed to a goal of getting seven and a half hours of sleep, I started getting much more and much better quality sleep. I wasn't perfect, and it took about three months to get into the rhythm, but getting consistent sleep has made a huge difference, I feel better and get more done. Chaitan had to reckon more honestly with himself. What he wanted was to function well on too little sleep, but the reality was that he needed more rest. His work depended on it, and he saw results from getting better quality sleep. What Chaitan noticed when he finally got serious about getting more rest was that he couldn't change his habits overnight. That applies to almost all of us. When you want to make a change, even one that makes you feel good, it might take practice until it becomes more natural. Research shows that when it comes to creating a new habit, motivation is a lot less important than consistency. When I want to change a habit, I lean on the Fogg method, developed by B.J. Fogg, a behavioral scientist and professor at Stanford University. It's simple. Here is how it works. Step 1. Set a specific goal with a short time frame. Think less I'm going to take better care of myself and more I'm going to go to yoga class on Saturday afternoons for one month. Step 2. Make it very simple to start. You're much more likely to stick to a self-care habit if it's something reasonable and doable. Instead of committing to going to yoga five days a week, how about starting with just one class on the weekend? Step 3. Come up with a trigger to remind yourself to do it. In the yoga class example, this can mean putting on your yoga clothes first thing in the morning or keeping your yoga mat by the door. I'm only using yoga as an example here, not a specific prescription, although I do love it. You may not be interested in yoga but enjoy walking, ceramics, playing on a local dodgeball team, or meeting friends more regularly. Once you identify a few activities that help nourish and fuel you, you can apply these steps from the FOG method to start to integrate them into your routine. Your self-care practice doesn't have to be complicated or difficult. It can be as simple as taking 10 minutes to sit quietly and drink your morning coffee or tea in peace before you start your day. Here is a great example from Tania, a senior project manager at a national non-profit, who responded when I shared with the happier community my struggle to become more self-compassionate. I used to wear stress as a status symbol and prided myself for being able to work absurd hours for days on end. After many episodes of this mentality driving me to physical illness, I finally got a wake-up call. At the Democratic National Convention in July 2016, I worked a 20-hour day. It was an exciting and intense atmosphere and I had a high-stakes role to play. By the end of the day, however, my body, mind, and spirit were so drained that I wound up in the emergency room with an allergic reaction. None of the doctors could identify a food or physical allergen. It seemed likely that stress was the culprit. That was a loud and clear message that I had to stop sacrificing my health for work, no matter how important my job seemed. My proudest takeaway from that moment is that I separated my identity from work and located my worth within myself. With this newfound freedom to feel worthy just for being me, I am able to give myself the flexibility to add creative time and rest into my work days. I've arranged with my superiors to be able to work from home on certain days. I turn off screens at 10 p.m., well, on most nights. 
I practice morning and evening rituals that fuel and soothe me, and I don't beat myself up when I miss them. And, as counterintuitive as it may sound, taking it easier has actually increased my productivity. Giving yourself permission to rest. Did you catch that last line in Tanya's email in the last section? The part where she talked about taking it easier and becoming more productive? If I hadn't had a similar experience, I would have dismissed it as totally impossible. But deep down we all know, even the workaholics among us, that Dania is right. How much awesomeness can you bring to the world when you're drained, exhausted, and overwhelmed? On a recent episode of Hidden Brain, one of my favorite podcasts, host Shankar Vedantam shared a story about Katie, a bright young doctor. Always determined and hardworking, Katie devoted all her time and energy to her job. As a resident, she often worked 16 hours a day, then went home, exercised to keep her body healthy, did some reading, and got a few hours of sleep. She cut out everything else from her life, including eating enough or spending time with friends. As you can probably guess, Katie couldn't keep this up. Eventually, she noticed that she had many near misses at work. For example, she almost forgot to prescribe insulin for a diabetic patient. Not eating more than some fruits and vegetables on most days brought her back to the battle she'd had with eating disorders when she was younger. Soon, Katie couldn't function well at all and checked into a rehab facility for people with eating disorders. One of the things she was required to do in this facility was, nothing. No sneaking in exercise, no work, not even jumping jacks. At first Katie described how angry she became. Negative thoughts filled her mind. But slowly she relaxed into doing nothing because she had no choice. She realized that she felt more peaceful. She started painting and drawing and fell in love with making art. She learned not to push herself so hard and to be okay with that. After she got better, Katie returned home and converted one of the small rooms in her house to an art room. She started to spend a few hours there every week, just creating, with no other goal in mind. A few nights a week she schedules a date night with herself, to watch a movie, go for a walk, or do something else she enjoys, by herself. When Katie returned to her job, she discovered something surprising. She had a much greater capacity to remember things and could get a lot more done. It was like her mind had expanded. Working less and taking time to rest to do things that helped rejuvenate her body and spirit, had done more to help Katie become better at her job than pushing herself had. I know only too well where Katie was coming from. I, too, had to learn how to rest and to use all my acceptance and self-compassion skills to calm the voice in my head that objected to my useless behavior, only weak people talk breaks. If you start taking them, it means you're weak and lazy. You'll get nothing done, ever. To my surprise, when I started to rest more, I found that, like Chaitan, I began to get more done and do it better. The year following my commitment to self-care turned out to be the most creative year of my life, and I'm generally a creative person. This has benefited my work, my writing, my family, my friends, and my soul. There, I said it, soul. Perhaps most importantly, for the first time I felt as if my work was fueling me rather than draining me. I didn't do any less of it. In some ways, I did more. But I did it differently, from a place of love, for my work, for my bigger why, for the people it benefited, and for me, 
rather than from a place of fear. For so long I had been afraid that if I didn't do enough, well enough, and fast enough, then I wouldn't be enough. My determination and persistence was still there. What changed is the way I use them and how I treat myself. There is increasing scientific evidence that supports the benefits of rest that KT and I have experienced, particularly the ways in which doing less can help us become more creative and productive. When we focus on solving a problem and then take a break from it, our subconscious brain keeps thinking about it. That is why we often literally come up with great ideas in the shower. It's a place where we feel relaxed and allow our conscious brain to take a break. Scientists call this the incubation period. Our subconscious mind has been working on solving the problem in the background, and when we allow the part of our brain we use for focusing and problem solving, our frontal cortex, to disconnect, the subconscious mind has the opportunity to share its solutions and ideas. It turns out that the brain is still working when we take mental breaks and often working in ways that we simply can't access unless we hit pause on the endless cycle of doing, email checking, reading, going to meetings, and other activities we normally consider productive. One of the critical tasks the brain accomplishes when we give it a break from having to take in new information is to reflect on and organize what it has recently learned. This is crucial. When you get a good night's sleep, for example, do you feel like you can do things better and faster? that your brain is sharper and you can get more things done. Your brain is sharper because it has had time to do all that reflecting and organizing. Naps have similar benefits. One study that looked at four years of data on highway car accidents involving Italian policemen found that when they took a short nap before starting their night shift, they reduced their risk of getting into collisions by 48%. If you hesitate to take time to rest because it feels as if you're doing nothing, remind yourself that your brain is doing a whole lot. Rather than thinking about rest as empty space devoid of productivity, consider it a necessary ingredient in optimizing your capacity as a human being to work, care for people you love, and share your gifts with the world. Dhanar, a marketing professional and members of the Happier community, writes about how doing something other than work helps her to be more creative. I quit my corporate marketing job a year ago so that I could go into private practice, work three days a week, and spend the other days with my babies. It has been the biggest inner struggle to truly be present with my kiddos on those days and not be glued to my phone. I hate the guilt associated with taking that time to be with them and had completely forgotten that taking time away from work fuels my most important asset, my creativity. She's not imagining it. Studies show that we're more creative when we're relaxed and producing more dopamine in our brain, giving us another reason to take rest seriously. In one study, researchers from the National Institutes of Health scanned the brains of freestyle rappers using functional MRI to see what parts of their brains were activated as they invented their rhythms and lyrics on the spot. As they were improvising, the rappers had less activity in their frontal lobes suggesting that creativity requires that our executive functions take a back seat. When the brain becomes less focused on solving problems, there is more opportunity for free association and unexpected connections. Another word for that is creativity, the next important element of self-care that I want to share with you. Fueling up with creativity, I've always loved art, seeing it, learning about it, experiencing it, and creating it. 
I've dabbled with abstract painting over the years, completing maybe 10 paintings. But I've always wanted to paint. Really paint, with oil, or watercolor, or acrylic, or anything else. It's something that has been calling to me for decades. Mostly I ignored it. I'd begun my practice of self-compassion the year before my 40th birthday, but things were still pretty rough. As a part of my self-care efforts, I made a list of things I wanted to do for myself. To paint in Tuscany was at the top of the list. I'd never been to Tuscany, but I had this dreamy idea of painting outside, in a huge sun hat and white dress, with the green of Tuscan hills surrounding me. I must have conjured it up after watching the movie Under the Tuscan Sun, wasn't it fabulous? But nevertheless, there it was on my list. After much encouragement from a dear friend, I decided to make the journey to mark my big upcoming birthday. Yes, I went to Tuscany to paint. For two weeks. Of course, my negative self-talk had a good time with this, going on this trip all by yourself. My, my. It's so expensive. You're being very self-indulgent. Why do you deserve to do this? But the experience was so life-changing that I was able to quiet the voice down after a while. Finally giving myself something ideally wanted opened the floodgates. My passion for painting burst out of me with a force I hadn't experienced in a long time. I noticed that when I painted, the chatter in my head slowed down. Now when I paint, it feels like I'm taking a vacation from my head. I feel more awake to the world around me, more in the flow of life. Psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi has written extensively about the state of flow that we reach when we take part in an activity that is intrinsically rewarding for us, such as doing something creative. When we experience it, we often feel as if time has stopped and we have gotten completely immersed in what we're doing. It's the ultimate experience of being mindful and awake to the present moment, and one that helps us take a break from listening so closely to the voice in our head. Many people describe being immersed in doing something creative as similar to meditating. That has absolutely been my experience. A growing body of research shows a link between creativity and improved emotional health. In one study, Tamlin Connor, a researcher at the University of Otago in New Zealand, and her colleagues analyzed online diaries that 650 young adults kept for two weeks. The study participants reported how much time they spent doing something creative every day and how much negative or positive emotion they experienced. The researchers found that the day after they engaged in creative activities the participants experienced more positive emotions, doing something creative literally helped them feel happier. The study didn't find that experiencing more positive emotions one day led to more creative activities the following day leading researchers to suggest that creativity caused positive feelings and wasn't just associated with them. For most of my life I ignored my calling to paint. I considered it an extra, an unnecessary and undeserved luxury, just like self-care. My extremely narrow perspective went something like this, since I'm not going to make a profession out of this or make money to help support my family, I shouldn't invest much time and energy into it. I didn't feel I could afford the distraction. I know I'm not alone in feeling this way. Here is an email Susan, a member of the Happier community, sent me on this topic, I've had this vague feeling of disenchantment for six months now, just going through the motions, not really being here. I took time off from writing and painting classes recently, due to dealing with a troubled child in our family. 
I work in medicine so those are not my vocations, they were my creative hobbies. I just felt I should be more available to my husband and family during this awful time and I assumed the uck I was feeling was the issues our son is dealing with. But I was wrong. By ignoring my flow, I've been bringing a hollowed out soul to the table. I can't fix this child who is troubled, I can't even make my hair behave most days. But I can feed my soul and bring wholeness back into my life. So today, before work, I am starting with blue, I love the colors of blue and already I can feel the flow. You can only starve your soul for so long. I wish I had given myself the permission to do more art sooner in my life, that I hadn't waited until I went through my darkest hour or had a big milestone birthday coming up. Whatever it is that helps you feel whole, in the flow, immersed in doing something you love, it's not an extra. It's part of the essential fuel to help you live your best life, to help you experience more joy and share it with others.